Just a note, this episode contains graphic details of a bombing attack on a battlefield hospital, as well as death by starvation and dehydration. Planes overhead! An American serviceman yelled at 10 a.m. on Easter morning, 1942. Young Army nurse Juanita Redmond paid little attention until the shrill sound of dropping bombs registered in her mind. Those first bombs landed on an ammunition truck. The explosion's concussion threw Nurse Redmond to the floor. Shrapnel and pebbles rained down on the tin roof. Then, silence. Servicemen and hospital workers rushed to the bomb site, litters in hand. Nurse Redmond rose to her feet, examining the open-air hospital ward. Broken medicine bottles and equipment littered the floor, but Redmond began salvaging what she could. The first casualties came in. Gate guards who were able to jump into their foxholes, only to be covered by bombing debris from which they had to be extricated. The boys driving the ammunition truck? They didn't make it. They're coming back! A serviceman yelled again. The patients in the war, all of them wounded or sick servicemen, became hysterical. But Nurse Redmond forced herself to remain calm as Father William Cummings, a 38-year-old Catholic priest with thinning sandy hair, tan skin, and a lined face, entered the open-air shed that housed the ward. This much-beloved chaplain, a beacon of hope on baton, stood on a chair in the ward's middle. He addressed the ward. Boys, that was tough. But let's pray to God they don't come back. Then he raised his hands toward heaven and began the Lord's Prayer as the patients who were still capable of movement dropped to their knees to join him. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The second wave of bombs fell, hitting the mess and the nurses' quarters. The sound of ripping, tearing, crashing wood filled Nurse Redmond's ward, and explosions rocked it. Dust, tree limbs, boards with protruding nails, and other debris flew in through the ward's open sides. The servicemen in Redmond's ward, many still on their knees, sobbed in helplessness. Outside the ward, other men shrieked in pain, and Japanese planes fired machine guns at anyone running from the bombs. And still, Father Cummings continued in prayer. For thine is the kingdom. A third attack came. A 1,000-pound bomb pulverized a neighboring ward made of bamboo. Tin roofs around the hospital smashed. Inside her ward, Nurse Redmond had taken cover under a desk, but the explosions blew the desk and Nurse Redmond into the air. She landed on the floor, the desk dropping on top of her. A sergeant kicked it away, gasping for breath, bruised and aching, and sick from swallowing smoke. Redmond could hear the unwavering voice of Father Cummings, still standing as he continued in prayer. The bombing stopped, and... As the smoke cleared, Redmond drug herself to her feet to check on the patients. Their beds, some stacked three high, had bent and collapsed. Part of the roof had been blown into the jungle, but just a small part of the ward remained intact. That was where Father Cummings, wounded by flying debris and with a broken arm and blood flowing from his shoulder and face, remained steadfastly standing, the embodiment of enduring hope in the midst of the devastation. Amen. Concluding his prayer, he stepped down and turned to another chaplain. All right, partner, take over. I'm wounded, he said. Then, addressing an orderly, he continued, And uh, put a tourniquet on my arm, will ya? Thus, Father Cummings, 
standing in faith and covered in blood like some kind of representation of Jesus Christ, performed the Easter morning miracle, this is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This episode tells the story of Father William Cummings, a Catholic priest and missionary who, joining the army at literally the last moment, followed U.S. troops onto Bataan's battlefield. I want to double emphasize my caution from the beginning of this episode. It gets graphic when I go into further details about the hospital bombing. Researching this episode was disturbing and difficult for me, but I believe it's an important story to tell. However, it's definitely not appropriate for some people. All that being said, Father Cummings is truly an inspiring story of love, sacrifice, and faith, both in God and in humanity, against the backdrop of war, imprisonment, and the nightmarish inhumanity that can be the result. Let's jump in. William Thomas Cummings was born on October 30, 1903 in San Francisco, California to William Cummings, an Irish immigrant, and Agnes Aruli Cummings, a first-generation Irish-American. As a child, young William lived with his parents and two siblings on Golden Gate Avenue, just blocks away from the University of San Francisco and Golden Gate Park. His father worked as a paper carrier for the morning paper. William's interest in religion began in his youth. He attended Sunday school with the Holy Family Sisters, and at age 13, he developed a desire to become a priest. In 1917, around the age of 13 or 14, he entered St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California, where he spent the next eight years. St. Patrick's Seminary, founded in 1898, is renowned as the preeminent seminary on the West Coast, dedicated to preparing men to become Roman Catholic priests. In 1918, William attended a talk by Father Price, who was on his way to China as a missionary. Father Price's talk inspired the 14-year-old William's aspiration to become a missionary. However, due to family objections and obligations and other various obstacles, he didn't join Marinol until eight years later in August 1926. Founded in New York State in 1911, the Marinol Fathers are known for their commitment to compassionate outreach and support for the impoverished worldwide. Their website states, We are a U.S. Catholic order of priests and brothers who for over a hundred years have modeled itself after the compassion of Jesus in reaching out to those in the world who are the most in need. Grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Marinol fathers and brothers partner with local churches to bring compassion, relief, and the message of God's love to the poor on the fringes of society. Headquartered in Ossing, New York, the term Marinol comes from the organization's location, which they called Mary's Knoll to invoke intercession of the Blessed Mother. Eventually, the name Mary's Knoll turned into the one word Marinol. 
When he was 24 years old, William was ordained as a priest at Marinol, achieving the position he had desired since adolescence. Father Cummings soon returned to California, where he resided at a seminary, which was located near Los Altos, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. He served there for two years, first as a teacher, and then as spiritual director. In 1930, he was assigned to the city of San Francisco, where he remained for 10 years. In 1940, he resided just a few blocks from the famous Painted Sisters, which have become iconic mainstays in San Francisco pictures. They are the row of brightly colored Victorian houses that are featured in the TV show Full House's opening credits. They are in the background when the family is eating a picnic in the park, if you've ever seen that show. In spring of 1940, Father Cummings received what he had desired most, an overseas missionary assignment. He was appointed to Manila in the Philippines. However, and the sources are somewhat nebulous about this, he had some health issues, especially back problems, and an operation may have caused a delay in his departure. But finally, in August 1940, he left San Francisco for the Philippines after having served as the superior of the Marinol Fathers in San Francisco for 10 years. I have a picture on Facebook of Father Cummings on board a ship departing San Francisco for the Philippines. The link is in the show description. Once in Manila, he taught at the Marinol Sisters School in the city until the war broke out. Japanese air forces attacked the Philippines on December 8, 1942, and at some point between then and Christmas Day, Father Cummings joined the U.S. Army as a chaplain. The circumstances of his joining, well, I found a few different stories. One source states, He showed up at the American Army headquarters in Manila in white vestments and offered his services as a chaplain. The commandment of the Manila garrison attempted to talk him out of it. He was 38, old for a combat chaplain, and he was nursing a back injury and also nearsighted and perhaps too thin. However, Father Cummings was determined to be an army chaplain. I'm somewhat suspicious about this story. I found it in a find a grave bio for Father Cummings, and there were no sources cited. Also, the find a grave bio further states that he signed up on December 7, 1941, now, he could have very well done that, however, December 7th was a day before the attack came and the war began, and the attack was a surprise. So, I question whether Father Bill would have preemptively left his missionary duties to join the army before war even started. Further, and this is pure supposition on my part, December 7th was a Sunday, and I'm not sure how realistic it would have been for a priest to leave his Sabbath duties to sign up for the army. All that being said, the main story, I believe, has merit. Father Bill was thin, some sources even call him frail. He had back problems and wore glasses. He definitely didn't fit the physical model of a battlefield soldier. So I lean toward the basic story being close to the truth. In the book Battlefield Chaplains, Catholic Priests in World War II, author Donald Crosby states, Two days after their overwhelming victory at Clarkfield, the Japanese bombed Manila. Cummings worked day and night at the Army's Sternberg Hospital in Manila, which had started receiving civilian as well as military casualties. In one especially hectic week, he visited over 800 patients in the hospital, sent hundreds of telegrams to relatives at home, and assisted the local Red Cross in its efforts to bring relief to the victims of the bombings. 
So this suggests that Cummings joined up within the first few days of the war, or at least he volunteered his services as a civilian priest at the hospital. Perhaps such service inspired him to join the army as a chaplain? Anyway, a newspaper article says Father Cummings called his parents on Christmas Day to let them know he joined the army as a chaplain and was commissioned as a lieutenant. Yet another source, this one a memoir written by Sidney Sid Stewart, a corporal in the U.S. Army's medical department who knew Father Bill on baton and as a POW, states that Father Bill signed up on baton sometime between Christmas and New Year's. Sid's account from the book Give Us This Day, a title that was itself a tribute to Father Cummings, and I'll get into why later in this episode, is touching. In it, Father Bill Cummings comes into the castle where Sid had been barracked. This castle, I believe, was most likely Fort Santiago, where the Japanese would later use its dungeons for POWs. And episodes 8 and 9 of this podcast tell the story of four American POWs imprisoned there, if you want more details. Anyway, Father Bill, wearing the white tropical climate habit of priests in Manila, came into the office where Sid was sitting in flickering candlelight. The electricity had been shut off. Telling Sid that he was a Catholic priest, he said he'd heard that the boys were leaving in about an hour for Bataan. And he wondered if there was any of them that would like to talk to a priest or go to confession. Sid responded, Well, Father, I'm not Catholic and he couldn't think of any Catholic men still remaining in the barracks. That's all right, son. Even though there are no Catholics, maybe some boy would like to talk to me. I could help that way. I've been a teacher here in Manila for many years now. Had a little school of my own. I used to have many little Filipino children, but my school isn't here anymore. It burned yesterday, and the school isn't anymore. Describing this exchange, Sid wrote, I had the feeling I was watching a man whose life work had been destroyed. Yet there was not a trace of sadness in his voice. It was as though that had passed, and that was the way things were. As they continued speaking, Father Bill said, I wonder if there are enough priests in Bataan. They don't need me here in Manila. There are many priests for the people here in the city. I wonder if I could go with you to Bataan. I'm sure that they need me there. I'd have to wear other clothes, of course. Here in the islands, we always wear our habits. The Filipinos would not know we're priests if we didn't dress as priests. Even though they weren't supposed to bring civilians to Bataan, Sid's lieutenant gave permission for Father Bill to come with them. So Cummings, Sid, and the other soldiers climbed into the back of a truck and started driving, with headlights off and creeping slowly down the road as they scanned the sky for Japanese aircraft. It took more than an hour for them to reach the port area, and it really wasn't that far from their barracks. They boarded one of the last ships leaving Manila for transportation across Manila Bay to Bataan Peninsula. The port was completely dark in an attempt to not become a Japanese aircraft target. As Sid and Cummings leant against the ship's railing, watching Manila and the fires burning the city grow small behind them, they began speaking. Father Cummings said, They don't need me anymore there in the city. I hope the boys out there will want my help. They'll need you, Father. Where we're going, we'll all need you. But Father, you won't be able to wear those clothes. Not where we're going. Well, surely when we get there, someone will give me something to wear. Sid rummaged through his pack and found a shirt, trousers, and a belt. Here, try these on. So the father changed into Sid's much too large clothing, 
The shoulder line of the shirt fell low on Father Bill's arm, and the sleeves went past his hands. Sid recalled, I realized for the first time how small he was. There was such a feeling of strength in the man that he had seemed to me much larger. Cummings, realizing how big the clothes were, said while laughing, They're a little big, aren't they? You must be nearly six foot four, aren't you? They rolled up the sleeves and the trousers and tightened the belt, and Father Bill now wore more appropriate military attire. Close to dawn, Japanese planes flew over the ship. There was nowhere for Sid and the other worried, scared soldiers to hide. Then Sid felt a hand on his shoulder, and Father Bill said, Don't be afraid, son. Don't be afraid. You know, son, the two strongest forces in mankind, the two strongest forces on earth are fear and love. You might call love faith. These two forces cannot exist side by side. If you have enough faith, you will have no fear. The planes disappeared, and soon the soldiers deboarded the ship onto a motorboat that took them to LeMay on Bataan's eastern coast. Sid and his unit received orders to march north toward battle. As they departed, Father Bill told Sid, I have to leave you here. We will see each other again, I feel it. I have to go back to report to someone who's head of the chaplain's corps. He will assign me somewhere. I wish that I could be with you boys, but I'll go wherever he tells me. Remember to think of God wherever you go. It'll be easier, whatever comes. So, three different stories of how Father Cummings joined as a chaplain. They contradict each other somewhat, but I think there are truths in all of these versions, as well as some errors, as I've earlier pointed out. As another example, I do wonder how much embellishment Sidney Stewart added to his account to make the narrative flow better, as memoir authors sometimes do. I do believe that Father Cummings sailed a baton with Sidney Stewart, but I wonder whether Father Bill decided on the spot to go to Baton and join the army. Well, since I wasn't there, I don't know how it all went down, but suffice it to say, Father Cummings joined as an army chaplain within the first few weeks of war and followed the U.S. troops onto Baton, and that in itself shows what a remarkable man Father Bill was. On Baton, Father Cummings traveled around the peninsula offering communion and confession to soldiers on the battlefield, helped at the battlefield hospitals, performed last rites for the dying, and held services at the open-air makeshift chapels erected near the hospitals. Other chaplains performed similar duties for soldiers of their own faiths. Of Cummings' work on Baton, author Donald Crosby wrote, He was older than most of the other chaplains and was in frail health, yet somehow he managed to withstand the long days of interminable rounds in the wards, the violent pounding from Japanese bombers and artillery, and the hellish living conditions that prevailed everywhere on Bataan. To those who knew him well, it was apparent that he drew his strength from his deep and abiding faith. Faith is something that Father Cummings admitted, and he wasn't the only one talking about faith in those early, dark, depressing days of war. Back in the United States, famed broadcaster Edward R. Murrow spoke to West Point in April 1942. In the address, He talks about how faith is one of the main things the United States would need in order to come out of war victorious. It is clear, I think, that we have traveled a highway from neutrality and indifference to cash and carry, Leesland to Pearl Harbor. As a nation, we have argued and debated each step of the way. That's our tradition. Great nations do not go to war lightly, for wars are much easier to start than to stop, as our enemies will discover. The road to peace is obscured by the smoke of battle, 
Certainly it will be no easy road to travel. Men and nations may fall by the wayside. But in the end of the day, at the end of the road, we shall break the hearts of those people who plan to enslave us. This is a test of will. Our enemies have won great victories. And these victories have been due not alone to a superiority in tanks, aircraft, and equipment. They have been stronger in arms because they were stronger in heart. Our faith must be greater than their faith. In February 1942, so after about two months on Bataan, a doctor wrote home saying that, quote, he and Father Cummings were together in base hospital number two on Bataan Peninsula and that both were feeling fit, close quote. And here's something interesting. Father William Cummings is credited with coining the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. He purportedly did so during a sermon on Bataan. Newspapers around the U.S. started using this phrase during the war and credited Cummings with originating it. I find it interesting that this phrase, supposedly uttered in a battlefield sermon, would become so well known so quickly. During the war, other chaplains in different theaters of war apparently knew of and commented on the saying. And many didn't like it because they felt foxhole conversion wasn't true faith or true conversion. But the veracity of the origins being Father Cummings are questionable. Donald Crosby in Battlefield Chaplain states, Legend has it that he uttered the phrase during a sermon he delivered on Easter Sunday Mass on Bataan. The evidence for the story is tenuous at best. General Carlos P. Romulo, a prominent Filipino military leader, attributed it to Cummings, but the general was careful to say that he never actually heard Cummings say it. Other survivors of Bataan also reported hearing stories about his making such a statement, but none of them were present when, and if, he said it. The simple fact is that no one ever said they actually were present when Cummings made the remark. So, did Father Cummings coin this saying? Well, I don't know. However, he is still, to this day, credited with originating it. Whether it's true or legend, I don't think anyone knows. A couple of the sources stated that the phrase was uttered in an Easter morning sermon. This piece of the legend I strongly doubt, and I'll explain why in a bit. On March 28, 1942, Father Cummings sent a cable to his family. It stated, Feeling fine, offering mass for you frequently. Don't worry. W.M. Cummings, L.T., chaplain. As it turns out, his family had every right to worry, because very soon, Father William Cummings would not be all right. At 10 o'clock on Easter morning, April 5, 1942, Army nurse Juanita Redman heard the approaching drone of aircraft. Busy with her duties at field hospital number one, she paid little attention. Then the sound of a falling bomb grabbed her notice, as did the concussion of impact. In her memoir, I Served on Baton, she wrote, It landed at the hospital entrance and blew up an ammunition truck that was passing. The concussion threw me to the floor. There was a spattering of shrapnel and pebbles and earth on the tin roof. Hospital number one was an open-air hospital. Many of the wards were located in sheds that had tin roofs, but no walls. And by no walls, I mean no exterior walls. These sheds remind me of the picnic pavilions at parks. Now, the surgery ward did have outer walls, but some wards had only the jungle canopy as a roof and dirt and foliage for floors. 
So this means the helpless hospital patients had no buildings to protect them from an enemy attack, except for foxholes that had been dug under some patients' beds, and hopefully they were fit enough that they could roll into them. Also, let's be clear up front that this hospital was marked with a red cross large enough to be seen from the air. The Articles of the Geneva Conventions, dating back to 1864, so a good 80 years before this attack, stated that, quote, there should be no obstacle to the humanitarian activities, and that wounded and sick shall be respected and protected in all circumstances, close quote. Basically, knowingly attacking a marked hospital is a war crime, and the Japanese knew that the area they were attacking was a hospital. After the first bombs, orderlies ran toward the entrance gate with stretchers. The servicemen in the ammunition truck were dead. They had never had a chance for survival. But the guards at the gate had jumped into their foxholes, only to be covered with debris from the bomb. About 15 minutes after the first attack, Japanese planes returned. Nurse Redmond continued. In the orthopedic ward, nurses and corpsmen began to cut the traction ropes so that the patients could roll out of bed if necessary broken bones and all. In my ward, several of the men became hysterical. I would have joined them if I could. It was all I could do to go on being calm and acting as if everything were all right, and I had everything under control. The second wave of bombing began. The first bomb hit the mess hall and the nurses' quarters. Redmen could hear the ripping and tearing sound as the wooden structures collapsed. Bombing debris, dust, torn wood with protruding nails came flying into her ward. She could hear the shrieks of pain outside the ward from hospital workers and even patients who'd been hit by bomb fragments or by machine gun bullets during a Japanese strafing run. Inside her ward, men were sobbing. And then, Father Cummings appeared. Climbing on a chair in the ward's middle, he called out, All right, boys, that was tough. Everything's all right. Just stay quietly in bed or on the floor, and let's pray to God they don't come back. He raised his hands toward the heavens and began reciting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom In the come, middle of this prayer, planet. the bombers came back for a third attack. The bombs made direct hit on the wards. They pulverized the bamboo sheds and smashed the open-air wards' tin roofs. And only imagine what the bombs did to the patients in wards with no roof to offer some protection. Patients in Redmond's wards' iron beds, some stacked three high, bent and broke. And if the beds collapsed, didn't kill them, flying debris or suffocation from the dirt and smoke filling the air likely would. Nurse Redmond tried to hide under a desk, but the desk and she were catapulted into the air. She wrote, I heard myself gasping. My eyes were being gouged out of their sockets. My whole body was swollen and torn apart by the violent pressure. This is the end, I thought. But then her body slammed to the ground, the desk landing on top of her. Outside the war, a bomb dropped just a few yards from where Father Cummings still stood. Shrapnel hit his shoulder, broke his arm, and shattered his elbow. Still, he continued reciting the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Carlos Romulo, a Filipino native and high-ranking official in the Philippine army, recalled, Blood poured down his face. In the swirling dust, he looked symbolic, a Christ-like figure. His steady voice did not falter. 
Slowly, the place quieted. Every person in the hospital able to move was on his knees, repeating after the priest, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. As the hospital quieted and the planes departed, Father Cummings turned to another chaplain and said, All right, partner, take over. I'm wounded. Of his actions that day, Nurse Redmond wrote, He certainly saved a great many lives that day, because if he hadn't come in and told the boys to stay in their beds, a good many more would have run out into the open than did, and they would have been killed because the Japs came down and machine-gunned people who were running. With the hospital now quiet and the enemy gone, Redmond and other doctors and nurses surveyed the damage. The hospital was almost completely demolished. Only one small section of Nurse Redmond's ward remained, the section where Father Cummings stood and prayed. She explained, There were mangled bodies under the ruins. A blood-stained hand stuck up through a pile of scrap. Arms and legs had been ripped off and flung among the rubbish. Some of the mangled torsos were almost impossible to identify. One of the few corpsmen who had survived unhurt climbed a tree to bring down a body blown into the top branches. Nurse Redmond could hear the screams of wounded and dying men in various wards of the hospital. She dug through the wreckage with doctors and other nurses, looking for men who might be buried alive. They tore apart smashed beds to reach the wounded. Of the 1,600 beds previously in the hospital, only 65 remained standing. Mess hall utensils littered the ground, and pages of medical records blew through the air. The nurses took count of how many of their patients were dead or still alive. They started transporting patients well enough to be moved to field hospital number two, but some patients were too bad off to leave. When night fell, the hospital staff worked by flashlight as they moved the dead to a mass burial site. They continued to find arms, legs, and mutilated bodies throughout the hospital. That night, Nurse Redmond and her fellow nurses stayed in their foxholes. Sleep never came. Instead, they were waiting, like hunted animals, for the next bombing wave. By morning, Redmond's fear had turned into anger. She wrote, what kind of human beings would deliberately bomb a hospital, defenseless, openly marked for what it was, filled with the wounded and sick? An enemy that will bomb hospitals isn't an enemy you can ever come to terms with. The next morning, Japanese planes continued bombing targets nearby the hospital. Nurse Redmond was running between her ward and the trench, checking on her patients, when another nurse, reprimanding her, told her to get back in the foxhole and put her helmet on. It was damp and dark in the foxhole, and the planes continued to circle overhead. One nurse, who definitely wasn't an atheist in that foxhole, said over and over, Oh God, send them away! Oh God, send them away! Slowly, the hospital became functional again, as the nurses, doctors, and orderlies cleaned and organized the mess. But it wouldn't really matter all that much, because on April 7th, just two days after the hospital bombing, the nurses were ordered off Bataan and to go to Corregidor Island. And two days after that, Bataan fell to the Japanese. That was an intense and disturbing scene to narrate and I'm sure to hear. I just don't really have the words. One thing I want to point out is that the legend states that Father Cummings said the no atheists in foxholes comment in an early morning service on Easter 1942 
That's the same day as the hospital attack. So if the sermon's date is true, then it would have had to be a very early morning service. The fact that the portion of the ward where Cummings was standing and praying was among the few places still standing at the attack's end is and was considered miraculous. Miraculous enough, in fact, that according to some sources, Father William Cummings was nominated for sainthood. And I have to tell you, that was an amazing find when I was first researching Father Bill. I was flabbergasted that I had researched my way into a potential saint. The things I find in this research just astound me. Also, have you noticed that the stories about Father Cummings are legendary? When I think back on the various accounts about whether he said the atheist in Foxhole's phrase or about the miracle he performed at the Bataan Hospital, I realize that they are the stuff legends are made from. But interestingly, while no one, as far as I've found, is an eyewitness to the atheist in Foxhole phrase, there are several documented eyewitness accounts of the Easter morning miracle. These accounts all align with each other, even down to the things Father Cummings prayed and said and the wounds he received. So, while there's some question about whether he coined the phrase, the hospital miracle actually happened. Lastly, and on a different note, I personally do not think it was a coincidence that this attack came on Easter morning, a day that is celebrated among Christians for hope and redemption and resurrection became a nightmarish scene of mass death and destruction. I think the specific day was chosen by Japanese leaders to further break the hope and resolve of the American and Filipino forces. And it did, because within four days, Bataan surrendered and most of the men became POWs. Included in that number was Father Cummings. Shortly after surrender, the American and Filipino servicemen captured on Bataan were forced into the nearly 70-mile Bataan Death March. Providentially, however, Father Cummings was allowed to ride a bus to Manila. In his physical condition, he likely would have perished if forced to march. He stayed for a few weeks at Manila's Bilibid prison and then was transferred to the Cabanatuan POW camp. I don't have much specific information about his time at the camp, but my great-grandfather, Almasam, knew Father Cummings at Cabanatuan and said of him, The Catholic fathers, including Captain Cummings, administered untiringly to the spiritual needs of their flocks. In October 1944, after two and a half years as a POW, Father Cummings was one of the 1,500 POWs taken from Cabanatuan for transfer to the Japanese mainland. Among those POWs was Corporal Sidney Sid Stewart, who Cummings had left Manila with in late 1941. In mid-December, the POWs were loaded like cattle onto the Oroko Maru transport ship. That ship was bombed and sunk, and their surviving POWs were loaded onto two other ships to take them to Dachau, Formosa. During that trip, Father Bill told the men that if he survived the war, he wanted to be a missionary in Japan. A serviceman asked him in disbelief, But Father, don't you think the bastards are hopeless? No, son. No one is hopeless. The chaplain responded. A few days later, a dying man called Cummings to his side. Father Bill crawled to the man through the ship's crowded hull and prayed. Then the man said, Father, I've never been baptized. Please baptize me. I don't want to die without being baptized. But son, I have no water. Sid Stewart wrote, 
Father Cummings spoke as though to a frightened child, but I could see, as I knew he could, that the man would not live until the next ration of water was lowered into the hold. Father Cummings reached down and unlocked the man's grasp on his arm. I'll be back in a moment, he said. Don't leave me, Father. The man was sobbing now. Father Cummings crawled back to where we were waiting, but the look on our faces told him without asking, we had no water. Desperately, he looked at the other men, but they merely shook their heads sadly. Finally, he turned and crawled back to the dying man and knelt beside him. I saw him run his tongue across his dry lips. Then he spat on two of his fingers and ran them over the man's forehead. I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Then he took the man's hand and held it while peace returned to the frightened eyes. Once they reached Takao Formosa, the prisoner ship was bombed. This ship was destroyed, and hundreds of American POWs died. Father Cummings helped free men trapped under debris, assisted the doctors caring for the wounded, and helped the wounded men to get onto rafts that would take them to a new ship. Throughout the voyage to Japan, Father Cummings held his services and led prayers as best he could. Every night he recited the Lord's Prayer and led prayers for the dead and dying. Sid Stewart wrote, Each night the solace and comfort that we received from the prayers was more than anything that anyone else could do for us. He gave us strength and hope. I lived only for that prayer of faith and hope. It was the only strength I had. His voice was like the voice of God to me. As they sailed from Formosa to Japan, the Japanese allowed the POWs only five spoonfuls of water per man per day. By this time, the 41-year-old priest was weak from dysentery and thirst. Still, with the strength he had, Father Cummings did what he could to help the men more sick than he was, even sharing his meager allotment of water and food. He would crawl around the hold's floor to minister to others with what strength his body still held. Sometimes while doing so, he fainted with exhaustion. One afternoon, Father Bill went to pray for a soldier, but didn't return to Sid and his friend Raz. Raz searched for and found Father Bill and brought him back to Sid. The priest had fainted. Sid and Raz rubbed his arms, face, and hands until life returned. Sidney wrote, His eyelids flickered slowly and he opened his kind gray eyes. I'll be all right, boys, he smiled wanly. From then on, Father Bill was too weak to walk. He was passing blood with dysentery, and, Sidney said, His lips were parched and cracked, and his hands moved convulsively up and down his throat. I knew that he couldn't make it much longer. I prayed silently to myself that I would die before he did, that I would not have to see him die. One evening, Father Bill asked Sidney and Raz for help. Sidney recorded Father Bill's words. Can you lift your arms behind me? I can't stand, but my voice will carry. They will hear my prayer. Sid and Raz did so. And now I'm going to include Sidney's full account from his memoir of this moment. Men, men, can you hear my voice? Slowly, he began to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The cries of the men became still. I concentrated on the voice that soothed me and gave me strength and the will to live. Then I felt his body shiver and tremble in my arms. He gasped for air, and there was a terrible pain written on his face. He gritted his teeth, sighed, and went on. Thy will be done. 
on earth as it is in heaven. I felt him tremble again, as if he wanted to cough. His hands fluttered and his eyelids almost closed. Then, with superhuman effort, he spoke again. Give us this day. I felt his body go tense all over. He relaxed and his hand fell by his side. I waited, but his eyes looked straight ahead. The eyelids no longer flickered. I knew he was dead. Lay him down, Sid, Rass said evenly. He's gone. Lay him down. He's gone now. I cradled his head against my shoulder. I didn't want to lay him down. I couldn't bear to face the fact that he was gone. I moved from behind him and laid his head gently on the floor. Sid, he died like he would have wanted to die, praying to the God that he believed in, to the God that gave him strength. Why did he have to die, Raz? Why did he have to leave us? Don't think about the fact that he is gone. Try to think of his last words. The last thing he tried to give us. Give us this day. We must try to only live until we can see the sun up in the morning. You and I, and we'll make it. Live only for one day. All through the night, I didn't sleep. I lay there with my eyes open, thinking of all the man had done for those he felt suffered more than he, because they did not have his faith. He had tried to give it to them, this thing he had called faith. In 1950, Sidney Stewart published his war memoir, titling it, Give Us This Day, as a tribute to his friend, Father Bill Cummings. The morning following Father Cummings' death, the Japanese sent down ropes for the bodies of the men who had died during the past 24 hours. 20 to 30 POWs were dying per day by this point in the journey. And these men had been the strongest men remaining at Kabanatuan when they were selected to be transported to Japan. The ropes were bound around Father Cummings' body. Then the ship's booms and winches began moving the body upward through the cargo holds hatch. Sydney wrote, Slowly, the body started to rise, as though it was floating out of the hold. When the sun struck Father Cummings' body, it seemed to reflect a golden light. I watched that golden light and the body as it floated higher and higher up into the air. I saw the light with the body move out across the deck. Then, I closed my ears against the sound of the bodies as they went down into the water. A couple months later, in March 1945, Cummings' parents received word from another military chaplain that Father Cummings was aboard a Japanese hull ship that was torpedoed in December 1944 by an American submarine. This information was incorrect. And it sounds like a mashup of two different hell ship stories, and you know how information can get garbled in the early days after a tragedy. But that information gave his family hope that their William was alive. Perhaps he had been rescued from the torpedo ship and was now a POW in Japan. Sadly, as we know, that was false hope. In July of that year, Cummings was officially declared dead. The Marino Father's headquarters had received official notification from the Secretary of War. And then, in October, about 10 months after his death, the true story of William Cummings' death finally reached his parents. I normally like to finish episodes with a legacy left by the servicemen. In this case, though, I don't have much. 
I have tried to find information about his family after the war and about living family members, but I've hit roadblock after roadblock and have come up empty-handed. Some of the sources I've uncovered state that Father William Cummings was nominated by Mary Knoll for sainthood. I don't believe that nomination still stands, but as I think about it, maybe his legacy is different from the other people I've highlighted. The tying factor among all his World War II experiences is his faith. The one thing everyone who knew him and wrote about him says is that he had unwavering faith up until the last moment of his life. So I think that is the true legacy of Father William. Faith in God, who is good and loves us and gives us strength, no matter what circumstances we may find ourselves in. So I'll end with the words of Sidney Stewart. He died like he would have wanted to die, praying to the God that he believed in, to the God that gave him strength. The Japanese attack on Battlefield Hospital No. 1 was just part of a larger final push by the Japanese to finally take Bataan after three months of horrendous fighting. For seven days, American and Filipino forces were hammered by non-stop artillery, air, and ground attacks. Their lines would break, and U.S. forces, despite direct commands to stop, retreated south and away from the Japanese onslaught. By the end of that week, the general in command of Bataan defied direct orders from MacArthur and even the president himself and surrendered Bataan to the Japanese. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Father William Cummings' story on the Left Behind Facebook page and the website. The links are both in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the attack on Battlefield Hospital No. 1, I suggest the book I Served on Baton by Juanita Redmond. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe or follow so you'll get notifications when new episodes drop. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon, Jake Harenberg, Paul Sutherland, and Mike Davis. I'll be back next time with a general who disregarded direct orders to save the men under his command. Music